Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. You can remain standing in honor of God's Word. I'm going to be reading verses 10 through 20 in Mark chapter 3. I'm sorry, I make that verses 20 through 30. All right. Then he went home, that is Jesus, uh, back to Capernaum, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whoever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, we do pray for you to bless the reading, hearing, and receiving of your word to us this morning. We need your word. We need Jesus. We need to, to see him for who he truly is. We need to be convinced of his power and his glory and his greatness. We need to agree with all those who saw him and were close to him, that indeed he does everything well. In his name we pray, amen. Well, please be seated. And we're going to look at this very, uh, you know, in a sense, very disturbing passage from Mark chapter 3. You've got some different impressions of Jesus. You've got his family's impression. You've got the the scribes and the religious professionals, their impressions of him. Uh, Jesus' commentary on how a house divided cannot stand. And then he mentions this, this sin, that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, where he says that that can be something that a person is, is guilty of for an eternity, like the unforgivable sin. And, and what is that all about, Right? All right, I want to begin by talking about these different impressions of Jesus. First, it's his family, then the, the religious leaders. And, um, and when you see in verses you know, 20 and 21, we start off by seeing how his family hears about um, the incredible response that Jesus is getting. He's, he's back home, you know, that's, that's Capernaum, presumably, the, the house that he's staying in. Uh, belongs to Simon and Andrew and their extended family. You remember that, where the paralytic got lowered through the roof of that house? Uh, it, I mean, I'm guessing the roof's, roof's fixed. You know, they're back, <laughs> back in the house. And, uh, and yet, it's still this 
mob scene and, uh, and people are coming and they just keep coming and there's no satisfying uh, the, the numbers and the, uh, the extent of the requests. Like there's this little line in there, right, that they can't even eat. Like there's no peace. There's no rest. They can't even sit down for a meal because of the numbers and the demands of the people that are coming. And then along comes Jesus' family. And we're thinking, right, that they've come from Nazareth. They've come from a short distance, but it's a distance to move from, to, to travel from Nazareth to Capernaum. Uh, and they come, and it's important to notice that Jesus has a family. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm going to state the obvious. Jesus is not a leprechaun uh, who just shows up out of the blue. Poof, there he is, and, and, and he's sort of independent of family connections and, and a history and a, a growth cycle, a maturity of, of who he is. He, he was born and he was a boy and then he grew to be a young adult and then a young man. And, and here he is in his early 30s and his family has this impression of what's happening and it, it's, it's not good. It's not good. Like, what, why did they come to that impression? Why, why is their conclusion that Jesus is, is, in, is in trouble? Um, imagine being in a, to, at a place in your family where somebody needs to be hospitalized because of, of something where there's maybe mental illness. The, the, the pain, the disruption, the, even the shame, the, the, the discomfort, um, of coming to that conclusion that the solution here is an intervention. And, and the word where it says they came to seize him, don't miss that word either because that's used later on in Mark to describe when John the Baptist was arrested and when they try to arrest Jesus. Like that's to seize by force, right? This is to, to commit somebody to, to hospitalization for mental illness against their will. This is what Jesus' family has come to do. How did they get to that conclusion regarding Jesus? Um, and I want to argue that it's actually a very sensible conclusion. More sensible, more sensible than the, the prevailing opinion about Jesus, the prevailing conclusion about Jesus where Contemporary culture back then and contemporary culture today just sort of consigns Jesus to the category of a really powerful, moral, spiritual teacher and influencer, uh, a, a nice person or whatever. Like, like, so imagine um, back in Nazareth and Mary is at her Canasta club. Uh, Mary, Mary's with her Canasta buddies and they're making small talk around the table and so, you know, one of Mary's friends, so how, Mary, how's Jesus doing? And Mary said, oh, he's great. He's at the lake. He's got thousands of followers, and they are just, like, loving his TED Talks. And, uh, and he's so nice to all those, all those sad, sick, demonic people, right? I mean, like, that just is a... That's a ridiculously shallow impression of Jesus. That's a ridiculously shallow conclusion to 
what he's saying about the kingdom of God and his role as God's Messiah, the Christ, the one who is God incarnate on earth to bring God's kingdom. Uh, Jesus said things that were incredibly subversive, incredibly revolutionary to establish power structures, to establish spiritual structures, and to just sort of consign him to, oh, he says nice things and he does nice things for people is just ridiculous. It actually sort of makes more sense to go, no, somebody who would say the kinds of things that he says is crazy. Like, all right, let's put ourselves in, 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 in these shoes for a second. Imagine um, Jesus is in his early 30s, right? So it's been, you know, what, 15, 20 years? No, 15 years or so since his high school, you know, graduation. We'll go with that. Now, imagine Jesus' high school graduation. You're there, and, uh, and you're saying hey to everybody. You're catching up. You're finding out who's married, who's not married, who's divorced, who's got kids, you know, what everybody's jobs are doing. And then and you watch Jesus, 15-year high school graduation. And, and it's been 15 years, but you recognize Jesus, right? The guy with the glow. You can't miss him. Jesus. Oh, boy, Jesus is here. Good to see Jesus again. Homecoming king. Right? Four years in a row. Homecoming king, um, voted most likely to change the world, uh, do something incredibly impactful. No, I, that's, I really don't think that's the vibe Jesus was giving when he was a teenager. Like at Nazareth High School, Nazareth Memorial High School, Jesus would have been, uh, I'm guessing, I'm imagining Jesus being the kind of guy that if you remembered at all, you would have remembered him as incredibly kind, but, but pretty quiet. Like he had a lot on his mind, a lot. And I'm not imagining Jesus running with the popular crowd. I'm not imagining him, you know, running in those circles. I'm imagining lunch, lunchtime in the cafeteria at Nazareth High School. Jesus is, is sitting, you know, with the, on the island of misfit toys. You know, he's with the misfit kids. And he's hanging out with them, and that's his crowd. Like in the yearbook, um, maybe, maybe two pictures, right? His senior portrait and like the carpentry club, that, that, that picture. Like you go to the back, Jesus has two pages where you'll find pictures of him. And that's Jesus. And, but you remember him, the quiet, kind, you know, thoughtful person. And, uh, and you're wanting to catch up with them, and you see him at the high school reunion, and you're making small talk. And so, Jesus, uh, how are things going? And he says, well, good. As a matter of fact, very good. As a matter of fact, the kingdom of God is at hand. And you're not really sure what to make of that comment. So you sort of go, okay. And you move on to the regular set of questions. So, you know, what are you doing for work? Oh, well, I teach. Okay. Uh, what are your hobbies? I like to fish for people. <laughs> okay, that's weird. Uh, what are your goals? I'm here to save the world. And that's just weird. And then he says, and I want you to follow me. And you're not ready for that. And you go, uh, okay, uh, what's your Twitter handle? And, you know, I'll follow, sure. No. No. I want you to follow me. I want you to lay down life as you know it, 
everything that you think is normal, and I want you to put that aside, lay it aside, and come and follow me and be my disciple and come with me. What is, um, you've just had that conversation with somebody at your 15-year high school reunion. What's your conclusion to that person? You're walking away, right? This guy's crazy. Mary and her, Jesus' siblings, they're going, no, this is my son. This is my sibling. Like, um, this, does, this is beyond bandwidth for Jesus to be saying the things that he's saying and doing the things that he's doing. He's got to be crazy, right? And we have to do something about this. And that's their impression of Jesus. Seems harsh, but there's actually a little bit of logic to it. And then you get the scribes. And there in verse 22, and they come down from Jerusalem, which is like from Richmond. Remember that? They're going a considerable distance. And their conclusion is he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons, which sounds harsh too. But, but what is it? I mean, is it harsh? Uh, they've come to the conclusion, like out of hand, there is no possibility. They've ruled it out that Jesus can be who he says he is. He cannot be the Christ, the Messiah. This is not the one that we're looking for. And in fact, you know, who knows if they actually thought it was ever going to come true, that God would come and deliver his people and establish his kingdom and bring its, uh, its fullness eventually. But, you know, they just had ruled that out. That was not a possibility. So what options were left? What options were left? Um, all the miracles, all the power, they couldn't, they did, all right, so one option that they did not have, which is popular for us, 2,000 years removed, it's, you know, people are quick to just sort of reject all the miracles. They, they, they sort of consign the Bible to a mythology, like, oh, those are nice stories, but did it really happen? Yeah, who, who can know? There's sort of this vague skepticism. You know, the scribes did not have that luxury. Because they were confronted with thousands of witnesses, eyewitnesses who saw the man with the withered hand go boom, you know, Jesus restore his hand, who saw the man, you know, lower down through the roof in Capernaum uh, and have his body restored in an instant, who saw Jesus's miracles. They did not have the skeptical luxury that contemporary people have just dismissing the story. So what was their option? Discredit the power. That was their option. It's by the prince of demons that he casts out demons. It's by Beelzebul, right? Here, uh, it's a, a, a fancy, weird sort of title for the prince of demons. Um, and it goes back to 2 Kings chapter 1, uh, King Ahaziah has fallen through the roof and he's had an injury and there's this weird parallel. Like did Mark or Peter, as he's you know, narrating to Mark, recording this gospel, was there a comparison between King Ahaziah who fell through a roof and was injured and who calls upon this Phoenician Babylonian deity called Baal-zebul, the lord of demons, the Lord of spirits, um, who calls on a foreign deity, an idol, instead of calling on the living God for healing, and Elijah comes in and confronts him on that, you know, and then there's this weird name that 
kind of as a derivation and a derogatory title called Beelzebub, which means the Lord of the Flies. And that's how he should have been regarding this foreign deity, but instead King Ahaziah is calling on this foreign deity instead of believing that only God has the true power to heal. And yet here's the scribes, and they're questioning where is this power source coming from, and they're attributing Jesus' miracles to darkness and to evil, right? And that's their impression of Jesus. Now, the problem here is that there's this divided house, as Jesus is concluding, like that's ridiculous. That's not a valid option. You've got to open your mind up to the fact that I am who I say I am because Jesus says, look, how can Satan cast out Satan? And a house divided is, or a kingdom divided against itself is going to fall. Um, Jesus is basically saying, look, there's an allusion here um, to the reality of Satan. Uh, there was already this mention that he's the prince of demons and Jesus uh, uses this name Satan, which means the accuser, and he's not for you. He's definitely against you. And Jesus even affirms that there's a strength to Satan. Um, I don't know what you think about, about the reality of, of Satan and the biblical account of who this being is, uh, but we live in a culture that tends to underestimate uh, the reality of a, of a personification of evil, this Satan, the accuser, an ancient, evil, intelligent, strong being who really is against us, who really is against the kingdom of God. And Jesus attributes strength to him. What do we do with that? Well, we can either cower before the prince of demons. Um, we, can, we can fear him and, and focus on him or as would be the healthy thing to do as disciples, no, we, we hide in, in our strong tower and we take refuge behind our shield and our, our defender. You remember, you know, a mighty fortress that, that hymn, if you've been in church for any length of time, you know that hymn and it's familiar to you. If you're new to the church, you know, that's an old traditional hymn that people have been singing for centuries and it's got that expression in it, Lord Sabaoth. It means Lord of hosts, Lord of angel armies, Right? And he's who we take shelter in. He's our strength. And so Jesus is calling us to hide in him. Let him be our protector. And instead of fearing him and, and focusing on, on Satan, we, we focus on Jesus. And the point of this parable is to say that it's just ridiculous to suggest that Jesus' power is demonic. In fact, it takes more faith to believe that Jesus is exercising demons and healing people and restoring them by the power of evil than it does to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And that he's actually doing this by the power of the kingdom of God. Like it's like saying, yeah, people are restored in their bodies and restored in their minds by virtue of this, like this boar's head, this intentionally ugly-looking, scary-looking pig's head, which is the, you know, a cover illustration for William Golding's book, The Lord of the Flies. Uh, how many of you had to read that in high school or whatever? I remember, I remember reading The Lord of the Flies at Norfolk Collegiate School when I was, I don't know, you know, ninth grade or 10th grade or something like that. And it was just a weird book. It was creepy. Um, these kids, they, they, their plane crashes. This is World War II. 
and their plane crashes on this island, and uh, all the adults are dead, and it's just the kids that survive, and they go from being these proper, orderly British schoolboys to a roving band of feral youth um, in, like, nothing. And they are in war paint, and they're fighting, and two kids get killed. Two kids are murdered um, because ev- just everything breaks down. And in one scene, they, the, there's a group of kids, and they're hunting, and they kill a pig, and they cut its head off, and they stick it on a stick. And this one kid comes across this decapitated boar's head, and all the flies flying around, and he, he calls it, the nickname is the Lord of the Flies. And in one scene, this bloody, gross, fly-infested pig's head speaks. And this kid hears this voice. And the voice says, you think the monster is outside of you? Running around on the island trying to get you? The monster's inside you. And it's William Golding saying, look, The darkness is within. And it's darkness that causes us to question where does Jesus' power come from? If I mean, to attribute his goodness and his miracles to anything besides the kingdom of God and God's blessing and his power coming is awful. That that act is evil. Like Jesus or or Isaiah, I'm sorry, in chapter 5 of his prophecy said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Like, woe to those who attribute the blessings of Jesus to Beelzebul instead of to the kingdom of God, all right? So Jesus is acknowledging the strength of Beelzebul, and Jesus is acknowledging these dynamics of evil and good. But But for the rest of the parable, Jesus tells us that there's someone who's stronger, who binds the strong man and then plunders his house, and he's pointing to himself, right? So the only one who can defeat Satan is somebody stronger, and, you know, people underestimate Satan. How much more do they underestimate Jesus, the true strong man, the stronger man? Now, Jesus, you know, later on in Mark, uh, in chapter 8, he's going to confront the disciple is he's going to say, well, so what are people saying? What's the conclusion? What is their um, estimation of me? And, you know, lots of different opinions are surrounding them. And, and then Jesus says, well, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? And Peter makes his confession of faith. You're the Christ. You're the strong, the truly strong man. You're God's man, the, the, the true king who's come to save us. And Jesus commends that, that profession of faith. Um, Jesus demonstrates his strength all the time. He uh, demonstrates it in his power over demonic powers and darkness and so on. And we see his strength demonstrated there. But there's one place where we see his strength over all things, over the the, the greatest power that, that no one, no one has ever in their own power been able to overcome, and that's death. You know, other people were driving out demons and they had their incantations and their spells or whatever and they think that Jesus is maybe getting in on some of that darkness. But nobody had ever overcome death. And Jesus demonstrates his strength, not in power over demons, but in his power over death. He went to a cross. 
And this good king, the true Christ, laid down his life as a substitute, as a sacrifice to take our sins away, to, to, to suck the evil and to suck the darkness out of us and to take our guilt out of us and remove it so that we could be acceptable in God's sight, so that light could dwell in us and goodness can dwell in us and God can, could bring us into his kingdom with our sins forgiven and his new creation. And Jesus accomplished that on the cross so that if we look to him as our substitute, not only in his dying in our place, but in rising from the dead, showing his strength over death, that we would get in on that strength, on that power. That power would become ours. Jesus demonstrated his true strength in his resurrection, overcoming death. He's the true strong one, and everybody who puts their faith in him overcomes death with him. We are promised a resurrection with him. Now, lastly, there's this interesting um, thing that people have stumbled over historically again and again and again, this thought that is there an unforgivable sin? And sometimes, you know, there's been anxiety over this. Have I committed the unforgivable sin? What's the unforgivable sin? Jesus says that truly, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. So take that to heart. All sins will be forgiven, the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. Oh, but except this one. <laughs> Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will never have forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. What is going on? What's happening here? What does it mean to be guilty of an eternal sin? What, what is this sin? Well, we've already seen on the one hand, um, this deliberate and intentional refusal to consider that Jesus might be who he says he is, the Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's this willful refusal on behalf of the scribes to believe that. Instead, we're going to say what he's doing is, is really through the power of the enemy. And no, much, no matter how much the Holy Spirit is shining light on Jesus, that's the Holy Spirit's job. You ever been to a play or a show and there's somebody in the booth and they're running the spotlight? And it's their job to put the spotlight on the main character on stage. You know, that actor or actress or that singer or performer, that's the spotlight operator's job. Make sure that person never loses the light. And that's the Holy Spirit's job, really. He always is illuminating Jesus and helping us see and understand who he is. Now, what's the sin again? What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? It means to refuse to believe that what the Holy Spirit is showing us about Jesus is true. It's to, ref to, to have the eyes of your heart enlightened, but then you say, no, I refuse to believe that. Moreover, Holy Spirit, what you're saying isn't true. It's, it's lies. That's a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's a willful, deliberate refusal to believe that what the Holy Spirit is saying is true. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 has some arresting words for us, but they're helpful to hear. It says that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think 
will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Has outraged the spirit of grace, right? That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Refusing to believe that Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice for your sins. He is Lord and Savior. And if he's revealed to you that way and then you just fell out and refuse him, then that's turning your back on what the Holy Spirit's revealed to you. So that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, but there's another way to look at this. It's not only refusing to believe what the Holy Spirit's revealed to us about who Jesus is, Lord and Savior, it's a refusal to believe what the Holy Spirit's revealing to you about yourself, about ourselves. That we are sinners in need of a Savior, that we are lost and we need a king. We need a shepherd. We need a Lord. When we deliberately refuse to accept that, when we, when we say, no thanks, I'm, I'm, I'm good, I can, I can do life well enough, I'm smart enough, I'm, I'm competent enough, I'm moral enough, I'm at least better than you know, these people over here, I'm fine and I can call my own shots and I can be my own Lord and my Savior. You're, you're saying that the Holy Spirit's telling lies about really who I am, about my need. And that's, that's, a, that's a rejection as well. Now, um, back to William Golding's book, uh, The Lord of the Flies, there's this scene at the end where all the rules have been broken. Uh, the true nature uh, of these boys has been revealed. They're just a pack of wild animals. And there's the end where the, the uh, protagonist, Ralph, is running for his life from Jack and from the other hunter tribe who are literally hunting him down to kill him. And they've set the whole island on fire to smoke him out of the forest. And all that smoke from the island is rising into the sky and a, and a naval, British naval ship, because it's World War II, sees the smoke and they come. And the, the scene ends, the book ends with a, a naval captain coming and intervening. And at that moment where they see an adult and they're reminded of order, and they're reminded of what's true, and they're reminded of even goodness, rules, kindness, etc. A rescue is open to them. Ralph breaks down. And it says his voice rose under the black smoke before the burning wreckage of the island, and infected by that emotion, the other little boys began to shake and sob too. And in the middle of them, with, with, uh, with filthy body, with matted hair and unwiped nose, Ralph wept for the end of innocence, the darkness of man's heart, and the fall through the air of the true wise friend called Piggy, his friend who was murdered, right? So Ralph had a, a moment of clarity. The rest of the boys had this moment of clarity where they realized how, how the darkness that was in their hearts. Now, they could have refused that. They could have said, no, we're fine. And that would have been a lie, a lie, a lie about themselves and a lie to this, this naval officer, but they didn't. So the good news here is that Jesus is saying, all right, on the one hand, there is such a thing as this unforgivable sin, but what's unforgivable? Well, the only thing that's unforgivable truly is unrepentance. 
Unrepentance, by definition, does not ask for forgiveness. Therefore, there is no forgiveness. That's the unforgivable sin. But anyone who, who looks to Jesus and asks for grace and calls upon him is forgiven because he says, come to me. I'll give you rest. I'll give you forgiveness. I'll give you grace. I mean, that's what Jesus says. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever the blasphemies they utter. What sins do you wonder if God's going to forgive you for? Do you, and you're alone, when you're wondering, and, you're, and there's darkness and silence, do you wonder, am I forgiven? Can God forgive me? Jesus says, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. But what's the only unforgivable sin? Unrepentance. Turning your back on what the Holy Spirit's revealing to you. If you're sorry for your sin, you are forgiven. Look to the one who offers you that forgiveness and take solace in him. I love Peter, right? So Peter's here. He's witnessing all of this. He's telling Mark about it. Mark's writing it down. We're reading about it here 2,000 years later. Peter writes in his first epistle, chapter 5, he says, God opposes the proud. God opposes the unrepentant, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, cast all your anxieties on him. All your fears, all your pains, all the things you worry about. Am I, am I forgiven? Am I a Christian? Do I belong to him? Am I his son? Am I his daughter? Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let me pray for us. Lord, we, we come to you and we, we do just what you've called us to do. We cast our anxieties on you because you care for us. We cast our sins on you because you forgive us. We cast our debt upon you because you redeem us. We cast our guilt upon you because you release us. Lord, all of these things are true for us because of Jesus who came from you to bring your kingdom and to forgive us and to give us a hope and a future. Lord, would you uh, bring light into our darkness. Would you change our hearts to see you clearly and see you more and more clearly and to love you more and more and to agree more and more that you do all things well. Lord, would you help us to hope in your gospel and help, help us find our identity as forgiven men and women and boys and girls. Lord, we pray for our church. We pray these blessings upon our entire congregation, but, but in particular, we pray for some of our families.